to After Deadline, the media podcast. We're your hosts, Kathy Fowler. And I'm Mark Silverstein. We are former TV news reporters who turned to the dark side and now work as PR and marketing gurus. This week, we're talking with Natalie Walters. She's a business and money reporter at the Dallas Morning News. She has experience before at working at the Dallas Morning News. She worked at The Street, Business Insider, and Motley Fool. So... With those kind of credentials, I want to hear, you know, all about the, her business knowledge. I want to get some stock tips, maybe even. You think she'll give us stock I tips? I don't know. We're going to find out. Welcome to the podcast, Natalie. All right. So you are currently working at the Dallas Morning News as a money and business reporter. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Automatically, I'm, I'm intimidated because I'm like business money. I don't know if I could be reporting on You're that. You're pretty good at spending it. I don't know. I am. I think I was intimidated by business journalism as well. I went into it at 22 or 23, I think. And I told my first boss, I don't know anything about this. I'm vaguely aware what revenue is. I've never seen an earnings report. And he said, as long as you're smart and motivated, we'll teach you everything. And it definitely, I think most business journalists do learn on the job. That first job was a, definitely a grunt job. I was writing 15 stories a day, obviously short. Um, Where was this? The first job? The street in New York City. Um, so you were cranking out 15 stories a day for the street? The street is a big publication, a big outlet, a big platform. That's Jim Cramer's website. So we, yeah. he would come in around, I think I heard rumors 3 a.m., 2 a.m. And I would see him in the elevators. I was going into work around 6 a.m., 7 a.m. But that really taught me business journalism and how to read earnings reports. And that was the first time I really learned about stocks, you know, other than my dad talking about stocks at the dinner table. That was my introduction to it. Did you ever like make any mistakes or it always got to the editor before it ever went out and you went, oh gosh, wow, that was bad. Oh man, I'm sure I did. It's been so long now that thankfully I've repressed that, <laughs> but I do, they were very strict on mistakes. I think I maybe misspelled something once and it was definitely a big deal whenever that happened. So this and definitely in grad I went to grad school as well and if you misspelled someone's name it was an automatic zero and so that was I that's terrifying you could I don't know how you pull that up but I do know a few people that that happened to so wait so you're what, what did you say you're 21 22 and you're at the street is it how did you how do you get that job at uh, such a young age well, I, I'm originally from Augusta, Georgia, and I went to school in Greenville, South Carolina. I did some really great internships in school and in college, and I was our copy editor. And it's funny because I was applying to some really tiny, tiny local papers in North Georgia, ones you've never heard of. And I got interviews there, and I didn't get it. And I remember being just so heartbroken, hopeless. I really thought it was going to be great for that. And I distinctly remember getting lunch with my parents and I'd never seen my dad cry before. And he cried for me. He was so sassy. And then a few months later, I got a fellowship with Business Insider. And I was so glad that other job didn't work out because Business Insider was much more exciting, much more on the cusp, you know, and, and doing much better financially. And so that was a great six month or seven or eight, I can't remember now, fellowship 
where I really learned how to find story ideas that audiences like, because as most people know, Business Insider is big on views and going viral. And it taught me how to be quick because we were doing three, four stories, five stories a week. And it was a great environment. It's a really fun place to work. Obviously, a lot of young people. There were a lot of jokes about that, you know, management being 30, 32. So it's, it was a fun place to work at. And then from there, I. Oh, wait, so you, so that was in, you moved to New York, I take Is that you picked up and moved to the big city, I guess? I did. I had one big suitcase in New City. I started at an Airbnb the first two months or so. And then I just steadily accumulated things. So I wasn't sure I would stay past that fellowship with Business Insider because my friends and family were still in the Carolinas. I thought maybe I'll just go try it out and I'll come back. And then I decided to stay, I had to buy a mattress, you know, bed frame. <laughs> Investments. Yeah, that whole mattress thing. I know. I've had to buy a new one in every city I'm in. <laughs> wow. So to, why were you interested in journalism in, in the beginning? Is that something that you were always as, as, a, as a kid, like you like telling stories? Do you like to write? Like what about the profession? And who were some of your heroes that sort of attracted you to the industry in the first place? I, we had a newspaper in our hometown, the Augusta Chronicle and Augusta, Georgia. That's where the Masters Golf Tournament is. That's what we're known for. And I read that a little bit, but not a ton. And we didn't have a school newspaper because I went to a small high school, but we did have a college yearbook, sorry, a school yearbook. And I was on that staff. I enjoyed that. And then all of my English teachers just kept telling me what a great writer I was and I hadn't heard that from my science teachers. Didn't hear that from my chemistry teacher that I was good at her class. Math teachers weren't coming to tell you how great they your math skills were? Did not hear that once in my life. So I was trying to think what I could do with that. And I knew journalism wasn't super stable or lucrative, but it seemed more stable than trying to be a book writer or, or something like that or a screenwriter. So I decided to try it out my freshman year and I really loved it so much. I That first time I had a story published in the school paper, I loved seeing it in the paper. I loved hearing my friends tell me what they thought about it. I loved it. What was the story? Do you remember that? What was the, what was the story about? I think it was about my, about the lack of sleep on campus. And I interviewed <laughs> my roommate and a couple friends. And I remember I took a photo of my iPhone of my roommate like lying on the floor asleep in our in our dorm room with books around her definitely a stage photograph which isn't you're not supposed to do that but I don't think I was aware of that at the time so that was a fun story and I just I yeah I think I just really liked the feedback and getting to tell stories so you, you go you go from there and then so who were there heroes any heroes that uh you, you started reading every day or you looked at or we had a lot that we went over in classes that I would start to read but I feel like there's honestly so many good journalists it's hard to really pick one or two it's more about the story so I'm I was more drawn to reading really interesting stories versus focusing on one person and their work yeah so what was it about? So you're at Business Insider and then how'd you get the job at the street? I 
just, I think they found me on LinkedIn and asked me to come in. I you know, you're the second interview we've done with someone who's young and got a job through LinkedIn and everybody hates LinkedIn. Yeah, I think I've gotten yeah two jobs from LinkedIn from people messaging me on there. Do, do you regularly update your LinkedIn and sing I, the praises of LinkedIn? Because we it, it seems to be working for people. It does. I do keep it updated. I wouldn't say regularly, but I, I'd say every six months I go in there and try to update it. And once you've revamped it once, you don't really have to do that much when you go back in there. Maybe add in a line, but I think having a nice photo and having, you know, but you're not posting your regular daily stories on the LinkedIn. I don't do that. No. No. <laughs> so you, you've worked at multiple publications, but you tend to kind of write more, I mean, about business and finance. Or, or are you drawn to those beats or were you assigned those beats and you just found that you were really good at that? And then, you know, that's sort of where you're staying right now. Right. I, well, when I first graduated, college, which was in 2015, I really wanted to cover startups, which is basically business journalism as a form of it. And so I was always sort of drawn to that. And I think business and finance journalism is maybe a little more broad and different, but it's sort of the same thing as covering businesses. And I was just drawn to it because it is so interesting. There's so many different types of businesses. It is what makes the world go round is businesses and money. It's what keeps people employed. And I really also couldn't think of another beat I'd rather cover. And then also it is more stable and business journalists do tend to earn more money. So all of those things were really appealing to me. And I liked that it was a little more complicated. I think journalists were curious. We like a challenge. It's a challenging beat and you never quite know as much as you need to know, but you learn with each story and keep increasing the knowledge. So you said it's a challenging beat. What's what's the challenge? Trying to beat other reporters or trying to trying to understand the complicated information and through it is that yeah that could probably yeah. be a massive challenge. Complicated, right? Sometimes we'll get yeah a story and half the day is just spent trying to figure out what this story is, how does this company work, what's its history, and trying to find documents. And yeah, it can be complicated. You know, we didn't, we don't have business degrees. We're learning on the job, on the story while being under deadline. And I think of other areas like, I would say the arts are more cultural reporters or breaking news where I feel like it's very much it's in front of you. The story's there. You understand it naturally. You're not having to ask people for help in understanding documents that you sometimes have on this business beat. So sometimes you're, I mean, you're basically looking at maybe numbers, right? And you're, and the numbers have to tell a story and numbers don't automatically to most people scream a story, right? I mean, that's part of maybe what you're doing. Is that, is that what you're, is that what you're explaining? Yeah, and there's also just so many numbers. It's finding the right ones. If I mean, yesterday I was looking at a, a this document's 160 pages, and it's you know when you're, I'm sure if I was on that company board, I'd I'd know. Oh, well, here's the important numbers. Bam, bam, bam. But when you're an outsider and you've just got this document, it's like, oh man, okay, I don't have time to read this whole thing. So 
how am I going to figure out what are the most important numbers right here? And we also do a lot of cover a lot of lawsuits and work with a lot of court documents, which I'm sure y'all know the legalese can be complicated. But I really think those stories are super interesting as well. I think being a legal reporter would be really interesting. So you 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 get the job through LinkedIn, and you said something really interesting about your bosses said they would teach you. That's rare. I mean, for the, the powers that be giving you time to develop, that's something you don't see that much. Yeah, he was he was nice to do that. He tended to hire young people, I guess, because it is a grunt job. I don't think mid-level employees would write 15 stories a day, but he did teach us a lot. He also had, it was a group of, I think maybe four or five of us young female reporters that were reporting to him and we all helped each other out. So when I was new, they explained things to me. And then when a new person came on after me, I helped her learn how to do it. So it was sort of a self, not the right term, it sort of self-regulated itself, that sort of cycle of reporters. Did you, what would you say your biggest story that you ever covered? Has it, has it been at your the place you are now or the Dallas street or, 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 the, you know, the in business insider? I guess it, it would probably depend on perspective. Some people would say different stories were bigger. I mean, for me, I think my favorite one I've done is this year we covered a retirement community. That's this really beautiful luxury retirement community in town. And it's where all the really wealthy Dallasites would retire to. And we received a tip off that it was not doing well financially. And so I started covering that and they filed for bankruptcy a few months later. And it's not just that story, it's the fact that it led to me looking into other retirement homes. And we learned this was a problem that the retirement communities cost so much to not only build, but to upkeep them with nurses, with the repairs you have to do, paying bondholders back, that they do more than you would think file for bankruptcy. And that can be scary for residents, especially those that maybe paid an entrance fee that was going to be refundable. And now once they go into bankruptcy, you're probably not going to get back all that money. You'll probably get back some, but maybe not all. And so we started. But the big question that. also was where they, I, I recall this. I didn't know this. I was, those were your articles. I'm sure they're maybe somebody else may have covered it as well, but I read your articles. The, they didn't know where they were going to live though too, right? They're right. They were scared. They might get kicked out. I mean, after I talked with different professors and experts in the field, they said that would be super rare that people, seniors would actually get displaced, that it wouldn't usually come to that, but that is a possibility. And getting to teach seniors what to look for when you're looking for a home was very rewarding. And I, we had so, I, I've gotten more emails about that story than any story I've done, which is why to me, that feels like the biggest one. And just well, because it had real impact on people, not only exposing a problem, but then hopefully preventing other people to become victims of, you know, this, the, the situation, because maybe not really understanding how complicated that market can be. And the, the fail rate is higher than what most people would think, because most people think, you know, when you are getting ready, these retirement communities, you, you think they're well, I mean, they're beautiful. Some of them are so gorgeous. So how can it, 
you know, how, how can it have a bit a, a bad business plan behind it? Exactly. I would have never even thought to look at those. And that's what so many people said. They, a lot of family members of folks that were in the home said, I would have, you know, they were like, I'm sure signs of financial decay were in the documents we signed when we put our mom in the home, but I would have never even thought to look at it because I assumed it was running smoothly. And I would have never thought to look at, is there a situation we wouldn't get all of this refundable money back? And so we did a whole series on that and an article on how, what to look for when you're looking at a home to be sure you don't get put in that situation. And it's been helpful for me. Honestly, my parents have really enjoyed reading it because they're, I mean, they're not near that, quite near that stage, but they're getting there. So it's been educational. Do you feel like at this point that if you ever wanted to start a business or, or go down like a certain that you would be like, I'm so much more knowledgeable now. Yeah. Let, let me tell start a business. dad, mom, let me tell you what how it needs to be done. First of all, yes. let's discuss your money and my inheritance. Okay. Yes. Are you talking about a business in general or a retirement? Yeah. A business. Like if you wanted to start your own business and um, you yeah. probably have, you know, you've got this. You have a first. master's degree. You have a PhD. Even <laughs> though you don't, I mean, you've learned from the, you know, the real school. I do think about that. Yeah, I do. Frequently, I think about just how many people I've met. And then you do sort of keep up with their companies and seeing which ones failed and which ones didn't. And I even think about, oh, like, what was their personality like? And, you know, did that have something to do with why that didn't work out or, I think also just meeting so many successful people and realizing they're not different. I know we hear that all the time, but I mean, I, I remember a few months ago, I was telling a friend, I was interviewing someone that day and they were like, that's a billionaire. And I said, yeah, I know we've like, we interview billionaires, you know, I wouldn't say frequently, but I mean, it definitely happens and he couldn't believe it. And I realized that in this job you do forget that it's not, you don't get starstruck because you interview so many important people and they're so very human and it makes you realize if they can do it, I could do it. It's just a lot about hard work, persistence, a little, obviously a little bit of luck, you know, sometimes connections or family money, but I definitely do think about that. Or if I wanted to go out of journalism, could I get a job working for a startup or a company on the business side? I think it'd be really interesting. Yeah, you could be a consultant for so many people, especially in certain areas where you've really, you know, dove in deep and because you know firsthand. I mean, yeah, but I when you're talking about science, I I want a Kramer tidbit. Give us give us some secret about Jim Kramer there. Come on. He's showing up at six. No, showing up at what time in the morning? Three in the morning? Three a.m. Right. He, He was quiet. Honestly, which is, I guess that's sort of funny. Because <laughs> that's a tip right Kramer was quiet. He was quiet when I saw him. But like I said, I honestly, when I was there, he was on a CNBC show. And we would, we would write up some stock reports for him that we would cover. But it was, it was a very, very hectic newsroom. One of those ones where you don't eat lunch and you don't get out of your seat and you do not leave five minutes early you stay until the dot um mm. i would say this job is much i have much more freedom i eat lunch every day <laughs> and um you get to breathe and get to stand up <laughs> the luxuries in life that you get to enjoy now 
So how did you how did you end up at the Dallas Morning News? So after so at the street, I became a beat reporter there working on tech and media stories. And then the Motley Fool reached out to me on LinkedIn after one of my stories at the street went kind of viral. That would probably be my biggest story there is I just happened to have interviewed someone who used to work at Amazon. He said, I think the grocery industry is about to get a big shakeup and I think Alibaba is going to try to do the same thing in China. So I had this interview on record and then it was like the next morning, some big news came out about, I think it was Amazon Whole Foods, that deal came out and I, we had just talked about Amazon Whole Foods. So I wrote it up real quick. We put it out and it went like just really crazy on the interwebs. And so Motley Fool reached out to me and offered a job. And so I worked with them for a bit and then I decided to go to grad school at the Cronkite School in Phoenix, they started a new program for investigative journalism where you can earn a master's in one year in investigative journalism. I thought that sounded super fascinating. And I was really interested in doing more data work, more in-depth work. I was interested in learning coding. And because it was a new program, they were offering folks with a lot of experience. I wouldn't say a lot, but some experience, you could get a full ride. So. The fact that you wouldn't need to pay anything was what sealed the deal. And so I did that for a year. It was super fun, super helpful. Really loved that program. So much good experience. And I was thinking I'd like to do something in local news where I am able to do a more, a better variety of stories, more in-depth stories, instead of just turning out quick stories on the business world. And so I took a break after two semesters in grad school to do an internship with Dallas News to see if I'd like it. I loved it and then finished out the master's and I came here and yeah, it's been great. A lot of us took off that summer to try something in journalism to see what we would like. There was, I think, maybe 16 or 17 of us in that class and we all sort of did different things and then came back together for our capstone project at the end. So you're not afraid to move around. That's a big deal. I mean, you, you, yeah. I mean, you, if you want to be in journalism, you got to move. Yeah, I think you can definitely obviously stay in New York. There's so many jobs there. And there were definitely others I looked at there that just didn't quite feel right. But there's so many jobs in New York. But yeah, I think if you're not in New York or maybe LA or DC or Atlanta, yes, you do need to be willing to move around unless you're willing to just sort of stay with your local paper. I, I mean, I'm sure you guys know there, I do think today it's more acceptable to move around. There's so many young people that are just move around a lot and sort of what people do. I was, it's funny because I was talking to a friend just this morning, she was thinking of taking a new job and she was saying how many people you look up on LinkedIn and you see they started a job for just two or three months and then they jump. So I guess, you know, people, have to be in control of their career. And yeah, I guess people got to do what you think will be best. So if you look at the journalism industry, you know, as a whole, it's changed a lot, obviously, in the, in the last, you know, few decades. But do you feel like you have, you know, has, is, it, is it changed as much in your industry? And do you feel like you're a little bit 
removed from some of the insanity that's going on in journalism as you know people saying fake news not paying attention to not be not seeing this news as a, a authoritative figure and you know where you can actually trust the news i mean are you removed for that or do you still feel some of that in, in your beat as well that's interesting i i do think we're somewhat removed from that i think that tends to be geared at politics like political coverage especially with the bigger papers like the times so i do feel like we're a little bit isolated from that but at the same time i definitely feel the effects it's not that i mean i see people saying that i feel people feeling that toward us and it can be discouraging because i i mean i know that i've been in newsrooms across the country and there are no meetings happening about how to strategize or how to put out fake news or how to trick people or put out a certain point of view. It just doesn't happen. We would never do that. We also don't have time to do that. We're stressed and under deadlines. And so I, it's, it's hard to believe that some people actually think that happens. And I'm sure maybe at publications that obviously have a very distinct point of view and are open about that, obviously that probably happens. But I'm talking about legitimate publications like the Times, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, the Dallas News, that, that doesn't happen. And it makes me sad that people think that because they're doing themselves a disservice. They're not getting news to keep up with the world. And I, you can choose not to read the news. I know some people find it negative and that's up to you. But if you want to stay up with the world and you're not willing to read the publications that have the most money to and sure, the news is right, then I'm not really sure what you're reading. And can you explain like the, the consequences? I, I think people, you know, think that some journalists, you know, are, are just making up stories and, may, and maybe like you said, in some point of view, journalism, and I don't even consider that really journalism. It's more commentary or, you know, we've had that forever, but it's not really journalism. It's opinionated, you know, it's, you know, it's op-eds, it's opinions, but when you are, I mean, what would happen if you would make a mistake in a story or you would make a mistake in a few stories? I mean, how, how important would do when you tell people like and explain journalism that dudes mistakes are like can kill a career or kill your credibility. I mean, you're only almost as good as your last story. How do you explain that to people about how tough this business is and how you got to get it right? Right. I know it's funny because I, I guess my family members are skeptical of journalism, to be honest. And I, you know, I tell them, I show them corrections run at, at the New York Times. And I say, do you see how they ran that? But, you know, like, why do you think if they ran a correction about misspelling the name of a city, why do you think they wouldn't run one if a whole story was wrong? You think they would just let that happen? Like who would do that? And you think the whole company would be okay with that? Like what, how would that ever happen? And it's not to say that mistakes don't ever happen in journalism, they do just like other people make mistakes at their jobs, you know, technical analysts, private equity, you guys make mistakes as well. And no, it's just, not me. <laughs> it just happens that our mistakes are out there for the world to see, you know, where it's like you're every day you're putting on a book report and anyone can look at it and criticize it and find mistakes in it. I mean, I'm sure everyone's English teacher found mistakes in your work. And so they do happen, but they get corrected. They're very big deals. Obviously, if a whole story is made up or quotes, that's that's way bigger than if you know you misspell something or have a grammar mistake. 
And, and it can be a career killer if you make a big, big enough mistake or let I me, mean, you would get fired. Right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right. I'm thankfully, I don't think I've ever had a big mistake. It's just been something that was very easily correctable, but yeah, absolutely. If you made a mistake that was big enough, it would kill your career. I know there was a reporter earlier this year that was making up stories. I think when I think of big mistakes, that's what I tend to think of because I can't think of people that have really messed up a story at our newsroom. But yeah, it well, would be a famous good. story about Janet Cook from the Washington Post who won a Pulitzer for a story that turned out to be made up, but she paid the price as she should, you know. But, but you know, I, I think it was interesting when you said that, you know, there, there, there aren't meetings where we're getting together and trying to figure out how to skew the news. You know, oh. when we were we were in TV news and I tried to explain to people. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we were coming up with new angles and made up things because we we go out on the story and the photographer and I couldn't even agree on a radio station to listen to. <laughs> You know, we couldn't agree on where to go to lunch. How are we going to agree on how we're skewing the whole news product? I know. Yeah. And then, and, and I mean, they think that, oh, you know, the media is getting with the big corporations to sell this story on this. And I'm like, are you kidding? Yeah, right. I mean, that's so ridiculous. If you understand anything about journalism, first of all, somebody would be writing about what you, there'd be another journalist in the same newsroom, (laughs) exposing what was happening in there, in their own newsroom. Absolutely. There'd be a whistleblower that that would never happen where everyone was silent. It just wouldn't. So how did COVID change what you did? Um, So I was in grad school when that happened. I was actually on a reporting trip in Panama when it broke out and we weren't sure we'd get back in. We were covering the immigration crisis happening there. We did get back in and it was spring break. We all said, bye, see you in a few weeks. And then we never saw each other again, which is really sad because we all went home for a few weeks, we thought. And then the rest of the grad program was obviously on Zoom. So I did my internship with Dallas News on Zoom from Augusta, Georgia. And so that was interesting covering Dallas from home. And I really loved it. I think part of that though, I was thinking about this recently is that I I was living at home. So my parents took care of everything. They were cooking, cleaning. I didn't have to worry about anything. All I got to focus on was my work. And I think that was super helpful. And it just showed me how much relief you get from just having help in life. I say that as someone who's still single at 29. I mean, that's sort of off topic, but just how much freedom that gives you in your day when you're not the only person running your household. But anyways, I yeah, just had to make a lot of phone calls, ask people on the team a lot of questions about Dallas, look up a lot of stuff online. But I think I did really great work that summer and I won an award from Cebu for one of those stories I did. And like I said, I think part of that was I honestly didn't have anything else to do. I was I worked overtime a lot because there was nothing else to do with COVID. <laughs> so, um, and that all made a difference. And you probably would have done that if you were in Dallas anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that kids, if you're listening at home, the ways to advance your career is just to work hard during a pandemic. So yeah. if you can get a pandemic schedule, but no, I mean, you, you would have, you know, worked that hard, maybe not, you know, all those hours, but you would have been in early out late and working the phones. Oh, totally. Yeah. I think, right. The circumstances did make it easier to 
work overtime, but it would have been the same stories and the same interviews and, and, and everything like that. I mean, I think it was also, there were just so many stories to tell. It was so easy coming out with stories that summer because you just pick an industry, pick a company and call them and ask how they're being impacted. And every one was interesting and it was sad, but it was interesting because this was a historical event. It hadn't happened in any of our lifetimes. And people really wanted to talk because they were hurting and their companies were hurting. So they really wanted to talk to us. Now, now that you work at the Dallas Morning News, are you? Well, wait, is it the Dallas? It was always the Dallas Morning News to me, and you keep saying Dallas News. Is it, is are we getting it right? Or are we? It's the Dallas it Morning News, but we do shorten it to the Dallas News sometimes. Okay. So, so do you concentrate on like the Texas area? That do you still do national stories? She did a story the other day, and this will be dated when this runs, but she about people renting out their backyards. For dogs. It's a great story. It's a, it's a, it's like Airbnb for dogs to yeah. crap on your backyard for you. And people are making a thousand dollars a month, right? Or more. Right. I think in California, maybe 3000 a month you can make. Right. That was an interesting story. So we focus on North Texas, which is sort of the Dallas Fort Worth area. And we keep it to that, but we do do some national stories as well. And we have so many big companies here that I think a lot of our stories naturally skew a bit national, but right. We focus on North Texas. Got it. Where do you see social media has, do you, are you, you know, some newsrooms I know they used to, I don't know now because social media has become a bit difficult and targeting people are targeting journalists through social media and kind of bullying them. Do you, do you have, but you know, a couple of years ago, journalists had to be on Twitter and Facebook. And that was sort of like a whole nother side gig that you had to do. And do you have to be on social media? Do you find social media helpful to spread and expand your stories to a different market or like, how does that fit into your reporting and, and what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis? I think it is helpful. I wouldn't ever delete my Twitter as long as I'm in this industry because I do think it's helpful to keep up with news, keep up with contacts, learn from other people. A lot of journalists tweet out things they wish they did better or tips they have or you know even mental health tips or career. So I think it's really helpful to be on there. I do think in local news, it's not as helpful when you're tweeting out stories. It's still a good thing to do, but I think it takes on another form when you're working in a national outlet and tweeting. Obviously there's just more people on there, more people interested in it, but I've definitely gotten some good traction on there when stories are just really interesting. Like I did one on a cryptocurrency class taught by a 21 year old at a senior <laughs> living facility. And people on Twitter just really loved that. Obviously there's a lot of crypto fans on Twitter. So that naturally sort of took off. So it kind of depends on it. Maybe you find an, an, a niche story that really fits with Twitter's interests that can take off. But I mean, is there a difference between the stories you do for online and the ones that make the hard copy or the, the daily paper or, or are yeah, they the same stories or? Yeah, they're the same. And they, they typically go in the same day. Usually we'll put it up maybe online at 2 p.m. and then it goes in the print the next day or sometimes we schedule it to go up at 6 a.m. but they all make it in print and sometimes if it's a longer story it may come out Monday and we'll hold it for the weekend for print 
So, but they all get in there. Do the same rules apply? I've noticed from the PR side that we have been, or our clients have been screwed by things that were, you know, on the blog and then they, they didn't verify things. They just wrote things for the online version and then it would make it into the hard copy. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You you didn't call. You didn't, yeah. you know, do any of the things you're supposed to do because it was, you know, it was online. This is going back a few years, but do you, does that go on? Not by you, of course. But I think they don't call to get more information. They just run a story. Yeah. Yeah. We we've yeah. had that happen with with, okay. and we're in D.C., so it was like a big outlet. I won't yeah. name any names because we still deal with them, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so easy to call. I feel like it always, you always get more interesting tidbits that we always try to call to get some more information. Well, you, you mentioned your age and a lot, boy, I sound old here. Okay. But a lot of people, younger people don't even like to use the phone. Was that like a skill you had to develop or, or you were always, you just were used to talking on the phone. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I mean, I also, yeah, still grew up in a time where we did have to talk on the phone. I had to memorize my friend's numbers. So I think I got a cell phone in college, maybe, or in high school, but I, I am a little bit more shy. I would say a little bit more introverted. So I did worry about that, but I think it's just a different side of me comes out when I'm interviewing people and I don't really feel like myself. It's like I'm doing a job. So it, it's, I've never felt nervous or hesitant about it. And it has given me more confidence. I remember listening back to one of my first interviews. I found an old computer and I was just cringing. I couldn't <laughs> I mean, oh, it was so bad. It was so, I was so not confident, so nervous. And so now I still cringe a little bit when I listen to my interviews back, but it's, I can tell it's so much better now. I used to, I, I worked, one of my first jobs was on the Hill as a radio reporter. And I would go interview senators and congresspeople. And I was so nervous when I would interview them and I would ask the stupidest questions. And fortunately they, you know, they stuck to their talking points and they would give me good answers. I would literally go in and like erase my, my questions in between the, the answers. So my boss wouldn't hear how dumb I was. But the funny thing is it honestly didn't matter what your questions were. The answers were always, always the, be same. the same. Anyway. Right, yeah, but <laughs> That's how good politicians are. I, I once had a, a Senator say to me, he goes, Mark, get you, take, get your question together, take a breath <laughs> and ask it. <laughs> that's so funny to me because i think i've done something like that before where right i didn't want someone to hear my question so i erased that part <laughs> good we all have our thing now the but i mean if you look at major papers some of them have cut back on their business sections dallas news is is still robust with their business yeah. section that's great yeah we're adding we added a new real estate reporter last month or a few months ago. Real estate is huge here. That's definitely our biggest coverage area. It gets the most, I would say the most views and subscribers by far. I mean, people just love real estate here. There's so many people in that business that gets wide read, read widely. So we have two real estate reporters and then we're adding a DEI reporter this month. She's coming from the Tennessean in Nashville. So we're adding, and I think it goes back to 
business sections do tend to be really well read and they're well read by people who are you know very successful and have the money to spend on the publication i think that helps and then also dallas is a huge business town i mean it's a big city tons of companies here who come for the nice regulatory environment for businesses they love moving here so yeah it gets political i mean abbott's go, going after a lot of these companies to get them to move there, you know, going after blue state companies to get them to move there. Do you avoid the politics or do you have to get involved in the politics? Does that sometimes you can't avoid it and you got to deal with it? Is that, I mean, how, how do you deal with those political issues that come with covering the business stories? We do. We don't shy away from it when it's involved. It's obviously not always involved, but we do have to contact Abbott's office some and work that into the stories or you know we've had a lot of Roe v. Wade issues coming up and looking at what businesses are doing about that or you know with COVID there was a lot of controversy there and with the riots that happened that summer I think politics and business do you know they definitely intersect a lot with stories. Do you um, it, for people who don't understand the behind the scenes journalism, can you explain sort of like at your paper, like the sort of separation between church and state between like ads and journalism? You know, I, th I think some people think that the the, the car dealer, you know, the the sales guys. Well, they have the billionaires there who are exactly. reading the paper. So that means more advertising. No, 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 but, no, no, no. But the advertising doesn't get involved. No, I'm explaining that. So do the sales guys don't like lean on you and go, hey, listen, there's a good story here. You need to can you explain that a little bit. I mean, I can say I don't even know who our salespeople are. I've never met them. I don't know their names. I don't know where they work. I assume in our building. We've never talked. So yeah, there's no connection there. We do, you know, when we get pitches, it's from a company's PR professional or their communication specialist. And we look at a story. If it's interesting to readers, we'll write it up. If it's not, we pass on it. Or if it's, you know, a lot of pitches, which I'm sure y'all are aware of, can be too gimmicky and salesy. If I, I think about this a lot with financial companies will write a pitch where they just want me to write about a financial product. Well, why would I write about that? Why, why would I write about that at a local paper? That's just an ad. And so I, you know, I think there could be some companies like Bankrate that might write about that where they're not strictly a news company, but that's not something we would write about. But so you'll look over our pitches and give us advice um, yeah. on how to fix our pitches. Their consulting fee. I'll do that. Okay, there you go. Yeah, there of you course, go. there comes the business. All right. No, well, that's that's a good thing. Like we, as former journalists, when we write a pitch, I mean, basically, we're writing it almost like a news story. You know what I mean? So we're not, we're not, we know not to be salesy because we know it's just going to go right in the trash can yeah. where, where it deserves to go. Or something I'm still surprised that is sometimes I get pitches from someone with a very sketchy looking email signature you know where it's not, it doesn't like a legitimate company it's like they just typed it out and that does impact you know how legitimate it looks I think that's such an easy thing to do is to create a nice sign off where it does look like a legitimate PR company but you do take pitches from PR companies and and look them over I mean what's the best way to reach you to not we, we don't have any clients in Dallas yet but we might yeah. but but what is you know how, how do how do you 
like to if somebody has a story in Dallas and not a PR company, but somebody has a good story, like how how do they reach out to you and say, hey, the, wow, this is happening in Kathy's Dallas? Interpreting exactly nobody's what I was trying to say. Paying attention. I mean, who cares if it's a PR person or not? Who you know, if somebody has a good story. How do they get in touch with you and how do they get your attention? Yeah, just just email. I do look at every email. It may just be sometimes I can tell from the header that it's not going to work for us. But I look at every one. I'd say you know, tips to get it, to get your pitch through would be, you know, to keep it very short and succinct. We're all busy to make a nice header that explains what you're pitching and to put yourself in our shoes and think what would they think is worthwhile to readers? Not just what is, it it may not be your ideal story. Your ideal story is I want my, this company is so great. Everyone should love it. Everyone should buy this product. That's that's not really real realistic. So think about what we would write. And some of the best pictures I get are folks who just find a really interesting, timely topic to weave their company into or weave their statistics they want out there into. And I think, oh man, I wish I had thought of that. That's really interesting. And so the whole story is not about their company, but they do get mentioned or their statistics get put in there. I think that's trends, trends of people renting out their pools or their backyards. uh, That's absolutely happening with pools too. People have pools. They're like, do you want to rent my pool for the day? I know. Uh, Yeah. Like sniff spot that story where you can rent out your backyard to people with dogs. I feel like that's gotta be an easy story to pitch. I mean, who doesn't want to write about that, but I do feel for people with companies that maybe aren't so interesting or aren't so timely. You do have to get creative. Well, when's the Pulitzer? When do you get the Pulitzer? Oh, I haven't decided. Maybe next year. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, is there a book? Are you you thinking a book? Are you thinking? I mean, what, what you know? Now that you've conquered the uh, business yeah. beat in Dallas. Yeah. Well, that's the thing too, is like you, you have such expertise. You're only going to you know get more of it. I mean, there's so much that you can do you know, with this knowledge that you have that, you know, sharing valuable information for people who need it. She's, she's renting out her backyard for dogs. Now, right? Yeah. Oh, my hype team. I need to talk to y'all anytime I get discouraged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was, I would, I think that writing a book would be great. I've always thought that later, a little later in life, I'd like to write one and maybe not even journalism or investigative related. I thought maybe writing a kid's book would be fine. I have nieces and nephews, and I'm a little obsessed with them. So that's what got me thinking about that because my nephew's obsessed with lawnmowers and I couldn't find a book about lawnmowers for him. It was really sad. So I think (laughs) there's a lot of kids books left to be written. Look for Larry the Lawnmower coming soon from Natalie Walters. Yeah, there you go. You're next out. Well, thank you for sharing some of the stories and sharing how, you know, the behind the scenes of your job and especially a a fascinating beat. And uh, I feel a little bit smarter. And now I need to read all your stories. So I'll be that much more smarter in the business and the financial world. And I'm not going to be like Kramer and show up at three in the morning, but you know, yeah, maybe five or six or something like that. But that's, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. I know if I'm if I'm not waking up at 3 a.m. at in my 20s, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie Walters, thank you. Dallas Morning News, the Dallas News. Pick one. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thank you.
Well, that was really fascinating. I think that it's it's crazy, though, how she had to jump in and know nothing about the financial business and then turn around and become an expert that everybody else is listening to. That's pretty crazy. I think that's how it works in journalism. It I does. think I'm glad to hear that it still goes on, that, you know, and that she had bosses who invested in her and gave her an opportunity. And, and she was a great writer and she turned it into a great beat. That's right. So I, yeah, I, I learned a lot and, and LinkedIn again with the, what's with the LinkedIn. Everybody's getting jobs oh my, from LinkedIn. Oh my gosh. It's like LinkedIn is like there to get people jobs. <laughs> what a new concept. <laughs> it's actually working. And I'm, but I'm surprised that like young people are finding jobs on LinkedIn. Okay. Do it, I sound old? You sound I, ridiculous. <laughs> but anyway. I get offers to buy insurance on LinkedIn. That's about what I get. That's a, so. Anyway, if you enjoyed and want to hear more of our voices and me rambling on about LinkedIn, be sure to follow us on social media at On The Mark Media and subscribe to the After Deadline, the media podcast anywhere where you get your podcast. Until next time, we'll catch up with you after deadline.